One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that connects you with our guests using the songs that have become bound to their memories and life stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Jade Dellinger. Jade has been the director of exhibitions and collections at Florida Southwestern State College for the past seven years, but is best known locally for his exhibition program and related events at FSW's Bob Rauschenberg Gallery. With an MA in Arts Administration from New York University, Jade has collaborated on curatorial projects with major museums in the U.S., Europe, Mexico, and South America for more than two decades prior to his arrival in Southwest Florida. Beginning his career with the Contemporary Art Museum at USF Tampa, he curated a collaborative exhibition with legendary motorcycle daredevil Evil Knievel in 1997 and worked closely with 70s pop icon Farrah Fawcett on a show for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in the mid-2000s. Jade has also organized major solo and two-person museum shows for artists including Yoko Ono, Anne Hamilton, James Franco, Robert Rauschenberg, Keith Haring, and Jack Kerouac. He has written for international publications including Sculpture, Flash Art, Art Papers, and Guitar Aficionado, and is co-author of the book Are We Not Men? We Are Devo, which traces the history of the seminal 1980s new wave band and 2021 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees. Jade's been on our list for years, so it's a real treat to get to sit down and get to know him now through his songs and song stories. Hey there, Jade. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Good to see you. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We are in the normal studio again. I am only four feet away from the guest for the first time since March of last year. This is glorious. Amazing. I'm enjoying it, too. Is Jade short for something? It is not, actually. And it's, it is your given name? It is, in fact, yeah. Huh. Got any brothers or sisters? No siblings. Okay. Uh, my parents actually contemplated giving me a Japanese name, and uh, Jade became the name that they decided on. But, it, but basically, uh, I was born in Tachikawa, Japan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. So, and only was there for maybe a year or something as a baby. Um, military connection? They were teaching high school American kids on a military base, but they were non-military, basically. Understood. And have yeah. you met any other Jades in your life? Uh Strippers, um, <laughs> really, they're, generally, it's a female name, you know, Jade Jagger, you know, Mick Jagger's daughter, that kind of, you know, but uh, yeah, no, uh, most of the time when I strike up correspondence with someone and they don't know me or haven't Googled me, they, uh, they usually think I'm a female, huh. you know, which it has played well, actually, with the gallery at times. We've... Uh, you know, in my initial exchanges with like the Gorilla Girls, it it probably influenced their decision to make a show in the gallery was that they'd be working with a female gallery director. Wow. Know? Well, so, I'm glad I asked you that. Yeah. That's some insight. Um, so born in Japan. <clears throat> yes. Where did you grow up though? What would you characterize as like where you grew up? My parents were, um, you know, uh, went to grad school in a couple of different places. So, so basically, um, we were in Eugene, Oregon for a time when they were in grad school and also in Boulder, Colorado. And then most of, um, most of my, you know, growing up from, uh, you know, grade school on was uh, in north, north of Tampa, actually. Oh, okay. Land Lakes, Florida. Okay. I went to Land Lakes High School. Yeah. How would you characterize the musical scene around you, you know, there? 
There as in uh, around in, and in Florida? Yeah, yeah, well, just, you know, during your formative years, what, yeah. you know, what was being played around you? What were your parents listening to? Characterize well, I, that. I remember, you know, probably a lot of sort of 70s rock stuff and 60s stuff. Um, you know, I have a kind of strong uh, connection memory to hearing John Denver, and that always sort of reminded me of, of uh, our time in Colorado. And, and um, at, at very young, those are sort of some of my earliest memories of, of music. And, and then, you know, things like, you know, Bob Dylan and James Taylor and Crosby, Stills and Nash and those kinds of, um, or Neil Young, or I'm, I'm sure that that and um, then balanced with my mother actually had uh, always wanted to be an actress and actually went to theater school at Northwestern and, and uh, didn't pursue that. But she was always playing and into um, you know, sort of Broadway stuff. So I couldn't really name those things, but but you know, if you played something, I'd probably know you'd probably the words. start knowing the words all of a sudden. <laughs> right. um, do you have any early musical memories? You mentioned uh, John Denver from those. You know, do you have any other things that pop into your mind of just something that crystallized when you were little? When I was little, um, no. I mean, I think that would probably be it. It's it's, uh, and I remember you know hearing the Beatles and John Lennon and things like that. But um, and that and that was probably. Also formative because I I think probably the first cassette that I had was some Beatles compilation or something along those lines, you know. Um, and then, of course, later, I, I know it's uh, probably a question you ask, but about sort of buying my first music mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that would have been, you know, um, I got turned on, I think, before high school. I would have been in, you know, junior high. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, have grown up playing soccer, and I actually was on a soccer team that went and played in in Europe. We played in England and Scotland when I before just before high school. What position did you play? I was I was a center midfielder, actually. Okay, okay, yeah. Continue. And uh, <laughs> and then um, during that time, actually, it was you know sort of early '80s, so it was before we actually had MTV, but MTV had begun. We weren't being able to access it. I was hearing. Um, a lot of what had been sort of left over from kind of punk era mm-hmm. stuff. And so I got really into The Clash. The Clash was like the first band that I was truly into. And and I remember buying for the first time, you know, The Clash London Calling, actually, and knowing every word, you know, to every song. What did your folks think of The Clash? Um I think they were, you know, they were sort of supportive and let me, you know, you know, gave me money to buy things. I, I you know, I it, it was broader than that. That was what I I first really identified with. But, you know, at the same time, I had Kiss albums and I was buying Elvis Costello and Prince and, you know, U2 and um, and and then actually Devo, too, was, you know, uh, early important when I you know, made my way to high school kind of thing. But the sort of summer before high school, I remember vividly, you know, sort of um, spending a month playing soccer in Scotland and and um, and listening to The Clash a lot. And at that moment, I think there was a band called Dexy's Midnight Runners mm-hmm. that had this song, Come on Eileen, that was on the radio constantly. Yeah, that was everywhere. And and particularly in the UK, you know, so, so – um, that was something we hear constantly, but but then you know, in terms of playing music, there was uh, 
there was someone on the uh, trip that actually was a big fan of The Clash that sort of turned me on to it, you know. Would you have been carrying around like a little Walkman cassette player? You know, I can imagine, you know, a bunch of soccer kids, they sit in their little corners with their headphones on with those cheap-ass little headphones we, we used to have. Definitely that. And then, you know, we, we had... <coughs> We had actually, you know, immersed in – we're living with families. So I do remember that the host family that I was staying with, um, you know, had a record player and stuff. So – and and they may have actually had that album or or the – you know, I, I, I remember being able to play it like on vinyl, which, you know. But then, yeah, of course, like having a Walkman with cassettes and all that stuff through, through high school, you know, putting – clipping that on and like going for runs or, you know, that sort of thing. I think we're about the same age because I think I'm thinking the same era. Um, What about playing musical instruments? Was there any of that in your family or for you? Um, Never really, but it's, it's a, it is a funny thing because over time I'm, um, you know, I've, I've always kind of been like a collector of stuff. And, and uh, at some point in the nineties, I really started, collecting uh, rock-related, actually sort of punk new wave era artifacts. And um, and so, you know, I probably even now own 30 guitars, but they're all like rock star guitars, you know, like, deep, you know, a guitar that was played by Bob Mothersbaugh of Devo or, you know, um, things like that. Yeah. So I, I – and I don't play instruments. Have so, you ever I mean, tried? I know that's a um, – you know, my wife actually got me an acoustic guitar and I – you know, I didn't have the patience for it or and or what it, it was just, you know, frustrating for me. It to, didn't stick. It didn't. I wish it had. You know, that's, um, if you could learn a musical instrument instantly without trying, which would you choose? Definitely guitar, because, you know, I've got 30 to choose from. <laughs> but also, uh, you know, I think that's the kind of sound I'd want to make. Do you have any musical memories from your grandparents? Um. No, not really. I mean, I remember um, my great grandfather actually was a, a baseball Hall of Famer, and and I grew up around like sort of Hall of Fame events. So I remember, you know, with them, if I were to think about anything musically, it was like singing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," you know, or something. Uh, going to events with him and going to Hall of Fame events, and and um, you know, it it was really with him that uh, uh, I first had a museum experience and it was going to the baseball hall of fame museum as a kid. Interesting. So for an induction thing and, you know, he was very much a part of my life. He was my great grandfather. He lived until I was 20. So he was well into his nineties and, um, and, you know, as at maybe seven or eight years old, we went up for a hall of fame induction thing. And it was the first time I realized or had any sense of, of, celebrity. I, you know, I'd always just thought of him as my great granddad, you know, and then the moment we got there, everyone's asking him for autographs and people are lining up and, you know, and his old buddy friends. And, you know, it was like Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio. And and I didn't ever think or know of any of these people as sort of famous people. But at the same time, I got sort of pulled away from him because he then, you know, had to go, you know, attend certain things and sign autographs and do the things that they had to do. And and the director of the Hall of Fame Museum uh, sort of took me by the hand and said, you know, come with me. You, there's some things here you really should see. And and I remember like going through and, you know, all the trophy cases and all the, you know, 
old uniforms and and then getting to this spot with this vitrine and in it, you know, this was the big reveal. And it was my granddad's like old beat up, you know, dirty cleats and like one of his hats and one of his baseball bats and and thinking like, why is that important? You huh. know? And I think that whole thing has really resonated with me over the years, this idea that institutions determine what's important and they tell the stories of these things. And they, and I think my confusion at that age, at seven or eight, seeing something that would have been totally common, you know, a dirty mm-hmm. baseball cap of my great granddad's that I was probably wearing another of that he had given me or something and, and realizing, oh, this has some historical – you know, significance and, and or at least the museum is saying that it does and people are coming to see it and paying admission and being was um, was one of those things that I think, you know, set my path in a way. What a fascinating backstory for you winding up doing what I would have never guessed it was because your great grandpa played baseball. Yeah, well, and and I, and, I, and that's why I played soccer too. Well, I, you know? I was going to ask: Was he like, "Come on, kid, why are you playing that foot sport?" Well, well I, you know, it, it, I I did, of course, like you know, very early on it, at the point that I was starting to get introduced to soccer too. Was, um, you know, whenever I would go and you know be on a baseball team, he would come, you know, and and then it would be it would be all about like this Hall of Famer is coming to it he didn't stole matter. your thunder no matter what. Totally. Like, you know, it didn't matter if I could knock the ball off the tee, you know, my great granddad was here, you know, and everyone would make a huge deal and he'd have to like throw out a pitch or be, you know, it would be so soccer for me, he was super supportive of and my dad had been, you know, like a captain of his college football team and that sort of thing. So so even playing football, which I did, you know, in high school, um, uh, it was something I was sort of naturally okay at. But soccer was completely my own thing. Hmm. You know, what was yeah. your grandpa's name? His name was Eddie Roush. Where do you, who do you play for? He played for the New York Giants and then the Cincinnati Reds. He won the won the World Series with the Cincinnati Reds in 1919. Carried the heaviest bat ever in baseball. To to, to this day, actually, I have pictures of him comparing bats with Babe Ruth and. Um, he went into the Hall of Fame in 1962 with Jackie Robinson. Wow. Yeah. So, well, I'm and, glad I asked you if you had any musical memories stemming from your grandparents. <laughs> That's a great little side story. Um, okay. Well, let's get to your first song. Sure. Um, wow. It, it's, I just uh, sprung it on you. If we keep, if we keep in order, uh, and I can talk about it on the back end as well, but is um, I, I picked David Byrne, actually. Um, Everyone's in love with you, which I, you know, uh, in terms of memories of also purchasing music, collecting music, um, the Talking Heads were super important to me and I think to our generation really. But um, they uh, – tying it into sort of now my situation and position with the Rauschenberg Gallery, um, I, I remember buying it, – it wasn't – you know, I wasn't buying music in 1977 when Talking Heads 77 came out. But I, I did remember buying – their Speaking in Tongues album. And that was important because, as you may well know, they did an edition of that that, Ra- that Bob Rauschenberg designed the packaging for. I did not know that. Yeah. So, okay. so this, to me, it was just when I was beginning to kind of be aware of my interest in pursuing art. And, and I was interested in music, but, you know, I was listening to the radio a lot. And I, of course, The Clash, I was kind of really focused on. But, but Bob uh, ended up it was an important thing for him. He had a deep relationship with David, and and um, 
and it was at David's invitation that he um, you know, designed this packaging. He was doing this series of works that were called the revolvers, where they were circular discs with imagery, but they were transparent and they would move. And so he designed a clear package that then had a clear record uh, for speaking in tongues, and in it were these discs that mm. would revolve inside the package. So, you know, this would have been then maybe my freshman year in high school. And I remember making that connection. It was like Rauschenberg was an artist that was an important artist, and I, and I, and I sort of knew that, and I knew Warhol, and I knew – and um, sort of simultaneously, this band that I really, you know, am becoming interested in, and I'm beginning to then see on MTV and all of that – um, had asked him to do this artwork, and it was really an artwork. So it was important to Bob because he ended up winning a Grammy, actually. Rauschenberg got a Grammy for his package design of the talking head speaking in tongues. And, um, you know, sort of full circle, it was also right at a moment when, as a teenager, kind of back to my grandfather, and I've told the story before, but but um, my great-grandfather as he as he aged, he had had a cataract surgery, and he continued to have problems with his vision. And much to everyone's surprise, in a way, I think his especially, he would continue, even though he stopped his career in the 1930s, um, he would continue to get fan mail. So our thing that we would do together would be that on the weekends when I would visit him, he'd be in Bradenton, um, I would help him with his fan mail. I'd read his fan mail to him, and he'd have dozens of letters, you know, by the weekend, every weekend. Wow. And this is decades after oh, he had finished playing. 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, amazing. So, but because he was a Hall of Famer, you know, and and I got to the point with him that, you know, as I'd read these things and he'd sign autographs, he was super generous about that. You know, he'd get a crate of baseballs and you'd know it's like some New York autograph dealer who's just trying to, but then there would be really sincere letters and people that would ask him really, you know, thoughtful questions. And um, the thing that was important about that was this is a way in which I connected with him and understood, you know, his broader and cultural sort of significance. But but it also made me aware that you could reach your heroes. Like baseball players were not – I didn't care, you know. But, but um, I was getting really interested in art and artists. So um, – I had read an article my mother had clipped about Rauschenberg where they had interviewed him and they'd actually come to Captiva and um, had gone out with him, spent an afternoon, done, done this interview. And they gave details about his life, his daily life on Captiva. And Captiva, even from Land O'Lakes, Florida, felt like a world away. I had no yeah. idea that it was just a couple of hours down the road. And so, you can just drive right out to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I, uh, you know, knowing and seeing these thoughtful letters that would come to my granddad, I thought I'm going to write a kind of fan letter to Bob. So when I was 13, 14 years old, right around this time I got the Talking Heads album, I wrote Bob a fan letter. But instead of R.R. Captiva, because he was the biggest property owner, they would have knocked on his door and handed it to him. Because of this article and the you know specificity, the specifics that they had included, I sent to Mr. Robert Rauschenberg, care of the Mucky Duck Pub, um, and got the Mucky Duck's address. Because in the article they said, you know, he'd walk the beach at sunset, he'd have a drink at the Mucky Duck, and they kind of talked about him being a big drinker. So I send this fan letter and I said, you know, Mr. Robert Rauschenberg, and 
knowing fully, even at 14, that he'd walk in, they'd say, you're here way too often. You're getting your mail here. <laughs> here you go, Bob. Yeah, yeah. And then inside it, I, I said, P.S., enclosed is 10 bucks. Let me buy you a drink, right? Which I think really resonated for him. So soon thereafter, actually, I think it was within a week, I got a knock on our door and the post, our postman letter carrier shows up with this big tube, uh, you know, canceled Captiva, Florida. And in it was a handwritten note from Bob that I still have. First thing I put on my wall, all of this, when I got to the Rauschenberg Gallery. But it said, I'll have that drink and wish you luck just before I go to work tonight. I've put a gift in your pocket, best RR. And in it was this lithograph. He had just come back from China, and it was inscribed for Jade, you know, from Bob. Wow. So it was a real full circle thing, but it also, in my mind, having bought the Talking Heads thing and Bob having designed it, it was like maybe the first work of art that I was able to collect was this record, but designed by Rauschenberg in a kind of limited edition, you know. Wow. So, yeah, felt full circle. Why'd you choose this particular song? And then David, of course, um, the first project I did at the gallery was um, this installation of records and record players. And I asked David to select records for it. And we've had a kind of ongoing relationship, correspondence. And, you know, when he's in town, we usually go gallery hopping or that sort of thing. For for some time, I met him briefly originally in the 90s in New York. And then, and then this song, I think was the first kind of tour that I remembered him coming to Tampa. And, and we, we bounced around during this time and I got to spend some time with him and, and actually went to several of the stops on tour and kind of followed the tour bus sort of thing, my wife and I. And uh, so in a funny way, this song actually always also reminds me of my wife because it's, it's a song about how everyone comes to meet me, but they fall in love with you. You know, and it's I'm jealous and a little <laughs> proud, you know, it are some of the some of the songs I want to kill and kiss you too, or some of the lyrics, you know. But it's 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 sort of like that, you know. You you uh that's how I think about my wife. So that's part of it. Well let's listen to it. I've never heard it. <laughs> really? Uh David Burns, Everyone's in Love with You. Uh, it's final track on his two thousand one album Look Into the Eyeball. Everyone's in love with you. David's amazing. I mean, and and all of the solo material, I think, is, you know, is uh, is sort of uh, doesn't get the attention it deserves. You know, um, what's your wife's name? Kathy. Actually. Kathy. Yeah. Okay. Kathy. Um, does she know that you associate that song with her like that? I think she does. Yeah. She I will think, now. She will now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, what is it like? I don't know if this is a reasonable question, but you know, David Byrne. Yeah. Everyone, you know, he's he's got that voice. He's you know, you hear it. It's like you kind of know him, but you know him. Yeah. What's it like to listen to his music and be able to like picture him sitting next to you drinking a cup of coffee? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he's he's re- one remarkably humble. Like like the times, and again, I. You know, I mean, we've had experiences over the years. He's usually on tour. So like, you know, well, no, I we'll spend a little yeah. time. We'll have a, we'll, we'd have lunch or something. But um, but it's funny to see people's reaction when you're at a restaurant and they're coming to take your order or something and they recognize him immediately. But um, no, he's I, I, I would just say that, you know, one, uh, he 
he's always been a visual artist. Like, you know, he, the, the Talking Heads really came out of a band that he had, the Artistics at RISD, so the Rhode, Rhode Island School of Design. And he's always continued to make art. So, so since my arrival at the Rauschenberg Gallery, I had done art projects with him prior um, in other places. Um, and then when I did this install, this John Cage installation, which was important to me because it was a, a project for John Cage's centenary in 2012 that I did for the Tampa Museum, and Cage had conceived of this installation of records and record players, um, and it, it was something that he had done in the 1960s, and he thought of it as the visitors, the audience would be the musicians, right? And it was a time-based thing where people could come in and interact freely with these two 300 records and 12 record players. So at times it would be silent and at times it could be incredibly cacophonous with lots and lots of stuff going on, people controlling not only the music they put on but also the volume. So um, because it was Cage's centenary, I had, I had had the chance when I went to graduate school, I moved to New York and lived in New York in the 90s. And Cage was still alive. I got to see him perform in very intimate sorts of situations and galleries. And I got to meet him once or twice. Um, and so for his centenary, I thought when he had first made this piece in the 60s, he had called a record shop and just asked for donated records. And he didn't care about the content of the records. It right, was sort right. of at random. But for his centenary, my feeling was we should get really special records and invite super cool people to select them or people that had a connection or had been influenced or so one of the first people that I reached out to to help pick records as a kind of guest curator was David and David had this very specific idea he wanted while others might be playing music loudly he wanted uh, there to be words present and that so he picked only spoken word records hmm. as his part of the installation and that was his right <laughs> and and it was amazing and yeah, you know yeah. it was such a thoughtful because it was like poets and it was like sp sort of spoken word art and um and then you know this project um everyone that i asked much to my amazement participated or had ideas or were so it was like Yoko Ono picked records and Graham Nash and David Byrne and Brian Ferry and Jack White pressed records and Lee Ronaldo and uh, Richie Ramone and Alex James from Blur and, and then a lot of people, too, that had these deep connections to, uh, you know, visual art, but who, you know, did a lot that had to do with sound. So Jim Rosenquist and Ed Ruscha and John Baldessari, am amazing group. When we did this at the Tampa Museum, Yoko tweeted about it. Um, Christian Markley. Yoko who? No, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> Yoko. I, I mean, really, I was, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Could, could not believe, like, how this began to snowball. And uh, Emil Schultz from Kraftwerk flew in for it to train our docents at the Tampa Museum how to use record player. Hmm. So the day before the opening, he was there. And Christian Markley, um, another hugely important artist to me, visual artist as well as sound artist who was connected with sort of the no wave era of people and collaborated with Sonic Youth and others. Um, Christian flew in from London and sort of started it all off by putting all these red vinyl records on all the record players and turning them on, you know. And um, so at the end of this thing, and it was, you know, sort of covered in the Chicago Tribune and the LA Times and other things, um, at the end of it, I my part of my deal was that I would 
keep all the records. And Kraftwerk had sent their personal records. Emil had brought them. Devo sent records. We had, um, you know, just, again, this extraordinary list of people. And so I was thinking, where could I sort of drive these records down to to sort of continue this thing, to do it again in, in this year, which continued to be the centenary, centenary of Cage. And Rauschenberg and Cage, Rauschenberg, um, you know, was uh, remarkably uh, interdisciplinary and had close ties and a great interest in, um, in music and dance in, you know, all of the sort of forms as well as in science. And he was the first NASA artist in residence. Um, he formed a group called Experiments in Art and Technology with these Bell Labs engineers. He sent – he was the first artist to send art to the moon that has been there secretly for – uh, since 1969 with the Apollo 12. Um, but he also was close friends early on and very influenced by John Cage. So I thought there's a gallery down in Fort Myers that bears his name and that has some history. I wasn't really that aware of it. And Bob had died by then. So it had been four years since Bob's death. Um, and so I approached the then uh, director of the Rauschenberg Gallery, and we decided we'd do it here. And it's kind of how I got here because, again, much to his surprise, after Bob's death and the, the sort of memorial that happened in Fort Myers, um, there wasn't another Rauschenberg show at the Rauschenberg Gallery. And there wasn't, you know, um, I think people in the community were really interested in finding a way to keep connected with that. And a lot of his former assistants, of course, are here and collaborators and partner. And so um, when I did the Cage show here, they all came out. And Laura Kuhn, my friend, who's the executive director of the John Cage Trust at, at Bard College, flew down on Bard's dime to do a talk with me in the gallery. Mm. And uh, and it was maybe six months later, I got a call from Ron Bishop, the former director, saying, you know, I've been here 14 years and I'm going to retire. And I know you're not looking for a job because I was always adamantly an independent curator and on the side of artists and, you know, negotiating with museums to make shows where I would make them um, and pitching shows in that sense, too, because as an independent, it was always, you know, the museums I would work with would have their own curatorial staffs. But if you came with a really great idea and you had ideas about how to get it funded or, you know, they might be open and then things could travel. But Ron basically said, you know, you might consider this. You won't have to pitch shows anymore. You'd have a venue. Mm -hmm. And so that's really – it was this cage thing. And then, you know, with David, the conversation continues because, I'm, you know, we've talked about maybe doing then a solo show here at some point coming, coming up. And, uh, you know, the last time he was through, he was on the American Utopia tour, and he only got – I think, well, he might have done Miami. I can't remember, but I saw him in St. Petersburg. He played in St. Petersburg. And, and so we've been talking a little bit about this idea of maybe a photo show or something. Hmm. But, but he's always been a visual artist and an, an incredible one, like really amazing stuff. And he's, he lived, I mean, he stayed a month or more at, with Bob at the compound. When the Talking Heads broke up, he was out there recording. Wow. Yeah. 
That's really cool. I got yeah. to spend a day out there once. It's amazing, right? It's yeah. quite a quite yeah. a beautiful. I got to go out there. They had they have their residency and the photographer that they had lined up to come out and document the residency had fallen through, and so I got to go out there with my camera because I'm a photographer yeah. on the side, and spend like ten hours out there mm-hmm. all around, just spending like an hour with each of the artists and taking pictures, and it was like. I couldn't even imagine getting to spend all your time out there. And they're bringing such fantastic people. So we 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 obviously with the with the gallery collaborate closely with them, and occasionally we'll you know bring people over, do projects, or you know when Lori Anderson was there, actually yeah. Lori's another person I'm really a big fan of, and for decades um, and have seen her countless times, but um, and traveled to see her countless times. Um, you know, we brought her over to do a sort of lecture performance at the Rauschenberg Gallery a few years ago. And I, 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 because of Bob's interest in all of this, I – and Lori had collaborated with him too, actually. Trisha Brown did a, a dance piece called Set and Reset, which is sort of the seminal Trisha Brown dance work as a choreographer. And Lori did the the music for that and Bob did the stage and the, and the costuming. So, you know – Remarkably, as you know, sort of much revered and loved as he is in, on, in a local on a local level, it's amazing how broad his reach was and the impact that he had globally. So, so I'm always trying to remind our you know local following and friends that this was a major force in in the world. You know, so and extraterrestrially is arts on the moon. Right, you know? right. Um, so I want you to bridge the gap between I played soccer and football and I want to go get my master's in arts administration and get into the art world. Like, were you always an artsy kid? Did you make art? Uh, like, where did that pivot happen? Yeah. I th- did I, it happen because of your letter to Bob when you were 13? I think probably. I mean, in the sense that I, I never made art. You know, I was never really interested in, like, drawing or in um, – any anything to do with that? It was, I think, in the same way I, you know, would think about someone like my great grandfather. It was about trying to sort of understand the importance of these things and and the players because you know these were people that were still alive that were part of the canon. You know, like Rauschenberg or or John Cage. I mean, these they were still accessible. You could contact them. You could meet them potentially. Although I wasn't sure that that would ever really be a possibility. Um, but I, you know, I think the the pivotal thing for me was you know in maybe seventh grade, um, I, we were asked in one of my classes to do a sort of presentation, and and my mother had had some old, very pink or yellowed slides of El Greco from her college trip to Europe, and so I did like a presentation on El Greco and. And it really opened my eyes. And then it was at a moment, too, that the Dali Museum was opening um, in St. Petersburg. So I spent a summer taking tickets as a volunteer uh. when I was about 17. You know, I could drive over to St. Petersburg. And and uh, and Dali had a very deep connection, was influenced by El Greco. There was, you know, and I started to, uh, you know, understand a bit more. Um, sort of early early twentieth century art, while at the same time trying to get a grasp on on contemporary art and modern art more broadly. So, so I really knew, I think, probably from seventh grade that like art would be a part of this, mm. and and also, I think you know um, I was interested in trying to understand it 
by accessing and connecting and doing interviews with living artists. So in my undergraduate time at the University of South Florida, um, I was fortunate to work at the Contemporary Art Museum as a student and then also have a mentor in the person that continues to be the director there, Margaret Miller. Um, since about age 18, we've known each other and have had a long kind of career together of collaborating on things. But um, that allowed me kind of access to artists that then were coming to USF and and or doing projects both in the museum and at Graphic Studio, which is this print atelier that had a long history also with Bob. I mean, they Rauschenberg did maybe 70 or 80 editions there. And it and that was the that was the home office for Rauschenberg Overseas Culture Interchange, which was his world tour. So all of that was happening, you know, simultaneous to my being kind of an undergrad and, you know, not having you know, uh, uh, any role in it, but, but, you know, knowing, being aware that these artists were coming onto campus and they were, and so um, as an undergrad, I started doing these sort of independent study projects where I would reach out and do interviews with artists. So I, I would phone them up, you know, I'd call Jim Rosenquist or I'd reach out to Jasper Johns or do an interview with Rauschenberg or, you know, uh, Robert Motherwell or, and they were, remarkably accessible in the same way, you know, if you kind of had the guts to do it, to send them a letter and say, I'm a student and yeah. you could send some really naive questions, which, you know, um, and they would be responsive. So when you finally uh, met Bob, did you remind him of your letter and the $10 well, bill or how did, did that ever like not get tied? It's, it's funny. I think I was probably in the room with him two or three times and was always too afraid to introduce myself. So I never, I never, I never actually met him in person. Oh, really? Okay. No. I mean, it was around USF. It was in Tampa. It was never down here. I never managed. Whereas Jim Rosenquist, his sort of best friend, major pop artist, you know, I have spent time and been at dinners seated with him, you know, and gone to, you know, over the years. Um, but with Bob, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 I, sadly... You should have. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah, I was just uh, – didn't have the courage. <laughs> so you went to grad school in New York. I did. I went to well, NYU. Um, yeah. Was that – did you want to go to New York to go to school or did you want to go to school and it wound up being New York? Um, yeah. I mean it was I, – I did a program in my senior year at USF that was at a small – University called Drew University, which was in Madison, New Jersey. And they had this amazing program where students, it was a small group that would be um, uh, accepted, but then they came from all over the country. And it was, it was called the New York Semester on Contemporary Art. And we would go into the studios of artists. We would um, sort of from Madison uh, make our way together most days um, into the city and sort of get to know the city, find your way around, go to openings, see 30 shows in an afternoon. And then you, you were given the option, too, of doing an internship the couple of days that you have off. So I worked at the Whitney Museum and uh, had a rather amazing experience there. I mean, seeing Cage, seeing and and you know, any fear that I had about moving to the big city, um, really, you know, that experience, it became evident to me that I needed to move to New York. I mean, it was, and, and it was such a comfortable sort of, again, commuting in situation um, that, 
I, I had no fear in sort of then moving to go to NYU to go to graduate school. And I did a program in arts <clears throat> administration and then, then um, was working in galleries and started curating, you know. Um, peak musical experience in New York. Wow. I know that's probably tough, but what popped into your that's, head first? <laughs> that's super tough. Um, well, there were, there were lots of instances of being, you know, um, at gallery openings and or, you know, small shows that would happen in galleries or small bars and things um, and or, you know, being at, a, at, a, at an art opening and David Bowie being there or having, you know, people like that, Lou Reed or, you know, in the room with you. Um, uh, I would probably say more it, it had been even more recently, you know, like going to see Laurie Anderson and actually – um, you know, having Lou Reed and David Bowie be standing at the bar beside you, you know, or um, lots of, you know, I'll still go up with some frequency to to do projects and or to even see shows. We, My wife and I both love all of this. So it's sort of like, you know, if Patti Smith is doing the horses reunion and she's going to be in Minneapolis, we've flown up for that or we'll, you know, certainly, uh, gosh, with craft work, we... We, on the last kind of big tour, we saw them in, or I did, she did some too, but saw them in five venues, went to, went to Hamburg and went to, you know, went to Seattle and went to Miami and went to New York to see them. And, you know. We sometimes ask, what's the furthest you've traveled? And you've clearly traveled for music. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And been super fortunate in the sense of also, you know, um, Connecting because because there's so much crossover and the the art part is is very um, you know they're they're so closely aligned. It's like so yeah. I mean you know we've gone to Berlin to see Lee Ronaldo and and got to then spend a couple of days with Lee Ronaldo in Berlin. But but going there specifically for that and to spend the day in the Ramones Museum in Berlin or whatever you know mm. so. We've been really fortunate that way, but what was the last show you went to see? Music show concert um, before the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, yeah. Um, well, the last thing that we did that was great fun that was actually in the gallery, and that was that was soon before the um, you know ever, the closure um, was. We did an, an exhibition with Beatrice Montiavaro, who's a Miami-based artist, who does these uh, paintings and drawings that are narrative, but they the the heroes and heroines in her stories are always these sort of pop culture figures from the eighties and and MTV people. So she's always been, as have I, but big fan of you know Gary Newman and Adam Ant and. Um, and then the Go-Go's. And so the Go-Go's thematically were evident all over the walls of the gallery when we were planning to make this exhibition of Beatrice's work, a site-specific installation. But tons of stuff about the Go-Go's rescuing Bella Lugosi from, you know, from Notre Dame when these aliens came and these. <laughs> and the idea, though, with Beatrice much to her amazement, I suggested to her that we should find a way to bring some of this to life. So she had never met the Go-Go's. I mean, she'd you know, been to many concerts, but I called 
Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's. And they're, of course, 2021 Rock Hall nominees, as is Devo this time. Um, and and I told Jane what, um, you know, what Beatrice had been doing. I sent her imagery. Uh, Jane was sort of blown away by these drawings that she'd been – she and her band had been the subject of this, this artist's work for right, right. decades and she'd never seen it. And so Jane was like – I'd love to come, you know, and uh, so we set up. And as it turns out, Beatrice is also this kick-ass drummer. Like she's been in all these bands, not bands that, you know, would be playing covers of the Go-Go's. But, you know, she's been in these like drone metal bands and these things in Miami and very much a part of like the Churchill scene down there and uh, for decades. But she knows all the Go-Go stuff, like really knows it, is really good. And she has all these girlfriends who also kind of came up with this stuff, but that are now like really accomplished musicians. So Steph Taylor, who plays with Iggy Pop down there, is a bassist. So we got Steph and we got we got Beatrice on drums. Huh. And then we had Jane Weedland front them in the gallery at our opening. And we built a stage and uh, they played Go-Go's tunes. But, but you know, even in the sort of sound checks and the couple of days of setting up while the, while the show was up that we were spending with Jane and she stayed about a week, um, you know, Jane just was like, you could step in for my band anytime. You guys are amazing. <laughs> I thought we were just going to like – and that must have just jamming. been like blowing Beatrice's mind. <laughs> it was. Oh, no. It was It was such a sweet uh, initial exchange because she was terrified. I went, I, you know, I picked up Jane from the airport from RSW and got her checked in. And, you know, we were at the hotel sort of downtown at the Indigo or whatever. And, and, uh, and I had, I had Betty, Beatrice, um, meet us, you know, to like have a coffee and for them to first connect. And, when I went up and I grabbed Jane and brought her down, like Beatrice started trembling and then um, and then started crying, you know, and Jane immediately just embraced her. Of course, this is all pre-COVID and uh, and it was just the sweetest exchange, you know, and, and so meaningful, sort of life changing this thing, I think, for both Jane now, I'm, you know, stay in contact with and she's sending me uh, now occasionally she's because of this experience is now painting. So so she's been sending me images of her new paintings as she's been making paintings. Um, but yeah, it was uh, that was maybe the last. And then I know I went to, um, uh, gosh, at the um, Lucinda Williams, I think, and uh, Jesse Mallon, too, had played, uh, maybe it was in, what was that, March or something, um, and and then caught them again after the Fort Myers show, uh, caught them in St. Petersburg because we had some mutual friends. So, so they were kind and put us on the guest list to then catch the St. Pete show. But they, but they um, you know, I, I always love seeing if they're in range, you know, seeing certain artists that you have a great interest in, um, you know, on multiple dates on a tour. It's, it's always fun. We'll, we'll see the Tampa show, then we'll go to Orlando or come down here or, you know, Gainesville or sometimes Atlanta, you know, that sort of thing. Wow. Seems like you've done a lot of interesting things. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's go to your second song. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you've mentioned that a couple it? times. It's Devo, right? Oh, Devo. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Devo, um, that's right. I, well, their, their uh, sort of manifesto was the first single that they released. It was a song called Jocko Homo. 
And so I, 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 put, I put Devo on there for multiple reasons. One is that in the gallery, we are opening our next exhibition with the lead singer frontman of Devo, Mark Mothersbaugh. Um, and uh, I had first brought Mark to Florida in, I think, 1999, you know, 20 years ago when I was doing projects at the Contemporary Art Museum at USF. Um, and I included him in a project that we did then. And it's sort of as a direct result of that and reliving my sort of high school uh, mail ordering from what would be always in the Devo albums when you'd buy the vinyl, they'd have an order form for Club Devo items. You could actually buy the Energy Dome, you know, quote unquote, flower pot hats. Did you have several? I had, I had one. one. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought had, you were going to say I had, I had three. I had one as long. Now I have twenty, but yeah, I had one as long as it lasted, and I would wear it to high school dances, you know. And so I had this, you know, Devo Energy Dome. Um, and and then as a result of, you know, again, doing an art project um, and I got Mark to do it because I Devo was um, Devo was playing their first gig in the late 90s in Los Angeles. They hadn't played in a decade. They kind of went into this semi retirement. and He was really focused on soundtrack work. I mean, he's incredibly accomplished, you know, uh, nominated, you know, for. Oscars and Grammys and all kinds of things. But, but um, he, the, the band had this gig in LA that had been planned in the late nineties. And I thought I never got to see Devo. They came to Florida. And when I was in high school and I was starting to kind of go to concerts, you know, my first concert actually was driving to Orlando to see the clash. And it was an incredible experience, but I, I miss Devo somehow. So, and I had been a big fan. It was one of the first things like, you know, Talking Heads, Speaking in Tongues, where it was so foreign to me. The sound was amazing. You know, the songs were incredible, but there was something about it that I knew wasn't as simplistic as the sort of novelty act that they had been written off as being. Right, right. Because of MTV. So it continued to sort of resonate over the years. So I, I thought, okay, I'm going to fly to L.A. I'm going to gr- grab a ticket and go to Los Angeles and catch this gig that, you know, and it was like Ween and the Violent Femmes opening for them. <laughs> wow. You know, and then Devo was the headliner. And I had been in touch and, you know, with – and this is like early email internet stuff. I'd been in touch with this guy who, who claimed to be connected with them and he was like, you know – sort of number one fanboy thing. And he was like, oh, yeah, if you fly out to L.A., I'll, I'll introduce you to the band, you know. And I was like, oh, well, that'd be great. And I had all these problems getting there, like my flight was canceled, and then I ended up having to fly instead of through Houston to, like, something weird. It was like went to Pittsburgh to L.A. or something. So it's, <laughs> I, I show up at LAX. The last minute, my bag got lost. I didn't have a hotel range. I had my ticket, thankfully, my ticket to the concert in my pocket. And I had just started kind of collecting some memorabilia. So I actually had a gold record presented to Devo that was like this object, you know, that was like, but it was for freedom of choice. It was their gold record. And I was, I hand carried that. So it was like, you know, my bag was lost, but I still had this gold record and I had a ticket to the show. And I showed up at the door and someone at the venue is Universal Amphitheater. Much to my amazement, I started to come in and 
they were running us through um, metal detectors. And they were like, why are you carrying this thing? Like, you got to go put that back in your car. And I was like, well, I may be meeting the band, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to get them to sign this gold record. Right, or right. And uh, so someone came over from the venue and much to my, my amazement, they slapped a backstage pass on me when they saw the record award. And so I would later learn that it was – so tough to get backstage, like the band's family members weren't back there, but it was people, you know, Dave Grohl and Chevy Chase and all these Hollywood yeah. celebrities backstage. You must have been like, I hit the sweet spot. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And, and then the funny thing was I thought, well, this guy who had said he would find a way to connect with me um, – I ended up getting introduced to him backstage by the members of the band, you know, so he was backstage and we became friends and stuff. And then was um, he like, how did you, what did yeah, you, how did you get back here? <laughs> yeah. Like people, this has been, and, uh, and so the next day I went to Mark's studio in LA and he has this incredible Mutato Musica uh, building where, you know, he records all of this stuff for soundtracks and, and everything. And, um, Mark, uh, I mentioned to him, you know, I'm a curator, I'm doing these projects. It had been some time that since he had really dedicated himself to making gallery or museum exhibitions. But since 1970, Mark, as a student at Kent State University, had taken experimental um, printmaking classes and he was deeply then involved, much like me in the sense of reaching out to artists that you're growing up in a small town. He's in Akron. He's in Kent. You know, he started sending artworks as postcards to Rauschenberg, to Jasper Johns, to Robert Indiana, and they would sometimes respond. And there was at that period, too, um, a kind of network of male artists, so-called male artists. There was a close friend of Rauschenberg's name, Ray Johnson, who started the New York Correspondence School. And he would send stuff around, and Bob was even connected and engaged in that. But Mark, as a young student at Kent State, even pre-Devo, was making these postcard artworks and mailing them all over, you know. Um, through time, it was something that he continued, and he began to really understand it as a diary. So he calls it his postcard diary. Um, to date, I spoke to him last week, to date his uh, total number of cards that he's saved, and that's not including those that he sent in right. the early days or even more recently, um, is 57,300 postcards. Wow. So he's made paintings or drawings on almost 60,000 postcards in the last 50, 50 years. And they're not right? prints, they're originals. Yeah, all originals. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unbelievable. So he does, even with during the Devo period, you know, if they were in, if they were in, you know, Japan, he would pick up postcards, he'd keep them in his pocket and on airplanes and on trains, he'd be making drawings and he would be saving them. Sometimes he would mail a few, but, you know, that is, it, it's really his story as an artist in the form of these postcards. So what we're doing now is, you know, my conversations with him had been, I brought Jerry Casale from Devo a few years ago to give a talk at the gallery. Um, when following, I guess I didn't say that, but following his uh, visit to Florida in 1999, I ended up coming to the realization that there really was no um, – real history about the band. There hadn't been a book about the band, much to my surprise. Like, you know, at the time, you know, you'd find, you know, 15 books on 
Britney Spears or something. Yeah. But and and only one or two on say Kraftwerk or the Residents or some of these other bands that I loved. But um, I I, I kind of couldn't believe that there wasn't a band a book about Devo. And I mentioned it to Mark, and Mark was encouraging and sort of said, "Oh yeah, it'd be great if something somebody you know." And uh, so I spent about three years of my life with a collaborator, David Giffels, who's uh, quite a celebrated author in Akron, Ohio, their hometown, who had also covered them quite a bit with the Akron Beacon Journal. Mm. Um, and David and I, and it, but David is an amazing, like, you know, had been in bands. You know, he wrote the, um, the episode – the Cornholio episode of Beavis and Butthead. He <laughs> yeah. was the guy who yeah. wrote that episode. Okay, you know? so, wow. So he'd done stuff like that. And that, I mean, super interesting, but also a real journalist, right. and a real writer. So I I had done a lot of interviews and, and found this kind of remarkable backstory about the band that no one knew. It's all now because of our book on Wikipedia. But, um, you know, a, about – a band member who was one of the founders who then, you know, was sort of left behind in Ohio and sued the band and he was under gag order and we connected and he told me a lot of the backstory. And I, at the time also, again, had access to the other band members and I tracked down Alan Myers, who was the original drummer, you know, during their, their most uh, 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 fruitful period, Warner Brothers years. And, and, Alan did an interview for the first time since leaving the band, you know. And uh, anyway, we did this book about Devo, the first book about Devo with a British publisher. And um, so the project that we're about to open uh, at the Rauschenberg Gallery is actually a collaborative show with Mark Mothersbaugh and an artist and singer-songwriter as well named B.D. Wolf. Um, it's a show that in the midst of uh, actually predating COVID, they um, were quite concerned, given particularly the history with, you know, being a mail artist, correspondence artist, that the post office was being defunded. Huh. And, right, and right. Yeah, yeah. that, you know, that would clearly impact the vote and, you know, whichever side of the issue you might be on, it, it, you know, it was um, the post office for many of us is sacred, you know. So they decided they wanted to try to save the post office. And so they came up with this project they called Postcards for Democracy. And the project is they made an announcement that they would be collecting artworks on postcards sent to them and that they would be creating a kind of website to post them as frequently as they could and that ultimately there would be an exhibition that would come of that. And I had been thinking about like, you know, doing an exhibition with Mark that might have focused on his postcards and the postcard diaries. And then when this happened and with COVID, you know, one, they were endlessly entertaining their letter carriers and the postal service people were thrilled to be like bringing bags of like these crazy artworks, many of them celebrating the post office, a lot of them heavily political and or at times anti-Trump, anti-politicians, anti-Louis DeJoy, that sort of thing huh. happening. Um, and then other themes, you know, like th things to do with Black Lives Matter, things to do with, you know, um, things that were really topical over this last year and a lot to do with COVID, of course, too. But, um, you know, the, the idea with this was that they would they were accumulating all of this stuff. 
it, it was also the case, um, and it didn't get uh, people didn't know it for a time until he kind of announced it. But Mark got COVID in the summer, and he was he nearly died. He was twelve days on a ventilator, um, and I think in many ways also the postcards that continued to come w- were terribly important to him. It was like something to look forward to, something to work toward, you know, in, in terms of uh, this whole project. So so we came to the decision that the Rauschenberg Gallery would be a really interesting place to world premiere all of these postcards and that that should be the focus of the exhibition. So for the first time, the Rauschenberg Gallery is really opening the walls to non-artists, children, you know, adults, whomever, that are have sent um, postcard artworks in, in an effort to support the postal system services. Um, and we're going to do a thing that, because there are thousands that they've received, we've installed now the first kind of batch, but we have enough to do two or three shows. So the idea will be that during the run of this two, two to three-month exhibition, it closes August 8th, we are going to completely uh, deinstall and reinstall these cards and with the goal that these things continue to come in. So people can still participate in the project by sending their postcard artwork, their children's postcard artwork, their students' postcard artwork, um, you know, with a 36-cent stamp to the Mutata Musica Postcards for Democracy address and, and um, you know, continue to support the Postal Service in that way. And they've designed for this RD stamp, so they've made stamps. We have stamp vending machines, and for a dollar and quarters, you can get, you know, this letter-pressed envelope that opens that has stamps designed by Mark and Beattie, so you can take away an artwork. Um, we've done an interview for a two-sided poster that folds down that comes in a in a glassine envelope like you'd get at the post office, mm-hmm. and they've done souvenir stamps that are part of that, and and. Uh, they keep sort of threatening and and uh, teasing that they're going to make their way here when they're able to kind of travel, but we're not doing a big opening or doing you know any anything quite like that. They'll be on there. We've commissioned a film of them introducing and uh, welcoming people to the gallery. So, but they're but, not going to be able to be here. Well, they they say they will, but I mean at some point during the run of the right, show. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, shall we listen to this song? Please. Oh, my gosh. I forgot Um, we're playing music. Yeah, no, we're playing music, and that's why we're here. Um, But no, but the storytelling is is top-notch. What is the name of this album? So this was their first single, Jocko Homo. Okay. And and it it was backed with Mongoloid, and they put it out on their own label, which was Boogie Boy Records. Okay. And Boogie Boy was Mark's alter ego. He'd wear a baby mask, and he'd do the encores, acting like a baby, and often in a diaper. Well, let's picture that. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Jared, the intern, take it away. How old were you when you first came across Devo? Oh, approximately. Yeah, I must have been, you know, 14 or 15. Okay. I would guess. At the end of the show, we often ask, what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today? Oh. Um, what would your 14-year-old self think if you, if he could know that you were going to have, you know, you'd be opening a show with, you know, the lead singer from Devo's postcard pop. You know, I mean, what would, can you imagine, like, if you could have seen that? I mean. I think, I think probably rather astounded. Yeah. But, but also, I, you know, it, it, it 
felt like the path in a way, you know, and, and that I, you know, there was a level at which I think, you know, I, I've always sort of felt that people are accessible and if you, it can engage them and connect with them in intelligent, thoughtful and provide a kind of context for them that, you know, anything's possible. You know, it's really. Well, you and I have that in common because in the early days of the internet, there was an author, I read his book and I was really moved by it. It's called uh, Socrates Cafe. And I just looked him up and he had a website and he had an email address. I sent him an email. And we're friends. I went yeah. to his wedding. You know, what I mean? <laughs> like, and I, and I, that was a lesson for me when I was, you know, it was probably 96, 97. So I was in my mid 20s. Wow. And suddenly I was like, yeah, you can just, you can connect people. You can yeah. do that. And I've continued to do that to this very yeah. day. And I think by 14 or whatever, I, I, I knew that it would have something to do with art, you know, and it, that would be part of, part of what I was about. But, and, and also again, like, you know, I didn't, I, I think, realize to the extent that so many visual artists and or musicians do both or have an interest in both. And particularly if they're successful musicians, they're, they are, really enjoy revisiting uh, the other things that are, they're passionate about. You know, they'll, they may be Sunday painters or something, but the idea of um, finding another outlet that's a creative outlet, you know, is something that is central to who they are as artists, you know. Um, do you listen to much music in your daily life? I catch the radio, you know, some. And like then, music on the radio? Well, like man, FM I, radio I, I listen, music? I listen to you guys. I mean, I listen to WGCU constantly, but then also, I mean, you know, not as much. No, really. Like I'll, I'll, um, I'll put it on my Google or Alexa or whatever at night before I go to bed or if I'm trying – or if I'm wrapped up in – pursuing a certain project or something. So sometimes I'm going back and listening to the catalog of some particular artist. And, and it's often about like listening to a whole album, you know, mm -hmm. instead of, you know, individual songs or even having it provide for me some mix based on something. It's usually like, yeah, I'll go back and I'll listen to Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom or, and just, you know, kind of cover to cover or end to end. Do you have a record player? Do you play I do. records? Yeah. Well, I, now and then I'll play them, but yeah, I, I, I definitely have old records and we have record players, you know, in our house and a condo down here. And, and, um, uh, but usually, I mean, you know, I'm catching what's on the radio or, or, or seeking out something that's pretty specific. You know, if there's a show that we're excited about or that's coming up, I'll be listening a lot to, uh, do, do your, you and your wife's musical tastes diverge anywhere? Um, Actually, you know, it's funny. We were we were seventh grade sweethearts. And um, so we've known each other for and then I moved to New York for 10 years and we had a mutual friend who was an artist. We hadn't seen each other in 15 years and we both ended up at an opening, you know, more than 20 years ago now. But um, so we we kind of had the same experience growing up. And I think it, we're the same age. So, you know, so our you know, she's really into Patti Smith and uh, Blondie and other sorts of, and but Prince and, you know, she did manage to uh, get to some concerts I didn't in the 80s. You know, she saw Prince. I didn't get, we were both at, you know, an Adam Ant show at the Tampa High Lie, you know, in whatever that would have been, 1984 or something. Not together, but in the same yeah, room. Yeah, the we, same space. Yeah. And then when I made my way back to Florida after leaving New York, at, you know, at the end of the 90s, um, you know, I mean, we had so much that was just common experience and common interest and love. And, you know, um, so 
So yeah. there's nothing she'll put on occasionally, and they'd be like, come on. Not <laughs> not really. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, again, our, our tastes really align pretty closely, much to my amazement. It's great. Uh, have you ever done karaoke? Uh, I'm m- much more the spectator, maybe, you know. What about I'm, her? She, she doesn't either, really. I mean, I think, you know, we've been in the room with, you know, drunken friends, you know, it's a spectator it, sport for me, for sure. Same. Yeah. Yes. I'm not, I don't kind of have the courage to do that. <laughs> um, what about dancing? Yeah. I, well, my wife would joke that like the last time she saw me dance was on our first, like going out to a dance club kind of place. But, but I don't, I don't mind that. I, we don't, we don't, I don't, don't go out seek and pursue it. Out, it. Right? Yeah. I don't, we don't go to those But if you're at a wedding, usually. you'll get out there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Later in the night. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, do you have a nickname at all that stuck over the course of your life? I don't. No. No. I mean, yeah. I think maybe because Jade is such a sort of unusual name that, yeah, it's been. It's you been were born. That. You were given a nickname, sort of. I w- yeah, <laughs> it was an a, an unusual name, particularly for a guy. You know. So. Um, have you seen many stage musicals? Over the course musical, of your life, like musical theater. Yeah, musical theater. Is that something um, that like you seek I, out? I, I, you know, I've gone to stuff with my mother. You know, or or you know, so you know, we definitely have seen Les Mis and Phantom and all those things on trips to New York. She'd come up to visit. But you're not like going over to Barbara B. Man and seeing shows. As they I don't come through do town. much of that. Sometimes, you know, um, uh, we'll get given some tickets or something. So we'll do a, a little of that. But I don't really seek out musical theater much. I'm much more into um, uh, even kind of, you know, avant-garde theater. Robert Wilson is a uh, theater director that I have great respect for. So we've, you know, we've flown to Toronto to see Robert Wilson doing the life and death of Marina Abramovich, or we've gone to Amsterdam to see his theatrical performances. And he, there he'd have Jesse Norman singing or as part of this theatrical performance or in Toronto, it was, um, uh, gosh, um, Anthony from Anthony and the Johnsons, you know, was was one of the singers in that particular theatrical performance. And actually, Marina Abramovich, the performance artist, was the central character, and Willem Dafoe was in that play. But it's a, it's um, I think it stretches boundaries in a way that kind of Broadway uh, theater generally does not or would not. And I'm much more interested in that and in. And in um, Robert Wilson as an artist. So we're actually talking about making a project that that would document um, a Robert Wilson theatrical production. But it happens to be a piece that he did um, in the 90s uh, that was um, called The Black Rider. And uh, it was a collaboration with Tom Waits, who I love. So Tom Waits did an album called The Black Rider. Well, The Black Rider was the music for a play by Robert Wilson and the lyrics and or the libretto for that uh, production was William Burroughs. So Burroughs and Waits and, you know, Robert Wilson made this theatrical production. And part of my idea about making the show here is to document that through the visual art of of William Burroughs as well as the written work. And Robert Wilson has always made drawings for those plays and and then uh, also 
Tom Waits and the lyrics that he wrote and the, you know, so I'm a big Tom Waits fan too. So, and he, and he collaborated several times actually with Robert Wilson. So I have a nice memory of being a student and getting to go see, they did, uh, they did a performance that was also then an album for Waits called Alice based on Alice in Wonderland. And as a student, uh, some friends managed to get us tickets to go not to the the formal performance, but actually to the uh, final dress rehearsal. So we had Tom Waits and and, uh, and Robert Wilson sitting behind us <laughs> yelling at the actors on the stage, you wow. know, and stopping the play, you know, sort of stuff. So, um, but yeah, the Black Rider, I think, you know, but I don't catch a lot. Yeah, I catch some shows. You know, at the Barbary Bee Man, uh, you know, selectively. Lyle, well, and 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 music there. So right. Lyle Love It and and uh, Robert Earl Keane or even Alice Cooper or you know, I mean, I catch things there now and then. Particularly if I'm in my office and working late and maybe can get a last minute ticket. Yeah, because you're right puts there. Me in, puts me in the front row. You know. So. Um, do you know who Jason Isbell is by chance? I know the name. He, I don't know. He if I... played there a couple years ago. So I oh. took my daughter to his first show she'd ever seen. It was amazing. Um, but wow. that's beside the point. Um, so cool. Are there any musical acts out there that you haven't seen that are still playing that you have on your bucket list? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, huh. I, 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 I'm sort of stumped. I can't. I can't think of anyone that I, you know, that is someone that I um, historically would. Nobody have you're booking to see tickets me. for. Not right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm well, and who knows when we're going to all What's really be able to. What's it been like? Um, it sounds like you travel a lot. What's it been like to have oh, that there's... constrained over this last year? I mean, have you felt it maybe more than some because you're used to being able to go off and do things? It's it's been tough. Yeah, I think you know. Again, I, I'm travel back and forth a bit to Tampa, right? So my wife works at the University of South Florida. Oh. And so we have a house there. And actually, that's where our pets are and, and have a condo down here. So, you know, during kind of the work week, I'm here. And, and, and then dependent on whether we have visiting artists and activity and openings and performances and things happening in the gallery, you know, she comes down. But in this last year, those weekends have been primarily spent, I guess, in Tampa. And and um, yeah, I had to cancel a bunch of travel. I was supposed to do a month-long residency in Venice, uh, Italy, and had some other projects that have, you know, sort of been pushed back, essentially. But um, looking forward to being able to move around a little bit more freely. But also, it's, of course, tough not being able to bring the artists that we right. engage, you know, yeah. that... If, if for a public event, I mean, even if they make their way to sort of see it on their own um, over a weekend or something, it's it's been the case that with these last two, three shows, you know, the artists have had tickets to fly in and then they just kept, you know, pushing it back and then finally having to kind of cancel the flights. And so that's been a sad kind of unfortunate thing. There's a, I think you're going to have there's a light at the end of the tunnel, I think. I think so, too. I feel great relief in uh, us all having begun to get vaccinated. What were you about to say? So I was going to say, you're going to have to edit this like crazy. Oh, no, no. That's what, that's what we're here <laughs> we're, for. We're I, just, I, reaching, I we, we're just hitting our stride. Um, <laughs> okay. If you were a championship wrestler, uh, what song would you use to come in on? That's such a weird question. Um, <laughs> I, the, uh, 
I would come up with something like really ridiculous. I, I um, I'm working on a book about the the performance artist and singer Klaus Nomi. So maybe Klaus Nomi's lightning strikes. Klaus Nomi's lightning strikes. Yeah, Klaus Richard, Nomi. be sure to put a little bit of that, a little bit of Klaus that in Nomi here. on there. Yeah. He was closely connected with David Bowie. He was sort of the first uh, singer performance artist person uh, to die of AIDS before it was AIDS, wow. actually, in New York City. And okay. he, he's an operatic singer that does like uh, children's songs and strange. <laughs> I like it's, that sentence. It's pretty fantastic. It's really. And there's actually a documentary movie about him called Nomi Song that I totally recommend. So you should check it out. He was he was connected with a number of artists in New York in the 80s, too. So his backup you know, performers at times were Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. And he was very connected with all those people. So, and I'm working on a a book project about Nomi because a lot of people don't know him. And, um, and so, yeah, I've been doing, connecting with all of that to do a lot of research. Oh, okay. No, wait. I, I know Klaus Nomi. You will recognize him. Yeah, I recognize him. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, wait, I have to stop this because I only know him because I watched Venture Brothers, which is that animated series from Cartoon Network. And the, the short version is the, the, the biggest bad guy in the world is actually David Bowie. He runs, he runs an organization of bad guys. (laughs) And his his two his 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 two right hand men one henchmen. of them henchmen his two henchmen are cl- one of them is Klaus really <laughs> yeah oh that's amazing that's so cool because because Klaus and Joey Arias um, backed David Bowie on that Saturday Night Live back in the day and of course you know uh, Devo it was really Bowie and Iggy that that really discovered Devo and helped them at the beginning so there's we do a lot with with uh, you know with both Bowie and and uh, Iggy in our book. Well, the other one is Iggy. This is his two, yeah. his two guys. Oh, really? Klaus, yeah. You need to I'll watch Venture Brothers. I'll show apparently. you a picture of it after. It's, it's <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> this made me so happy. That's great. Yeah. Um, if you were Iggy, co- Iggy did pick records for that cage installation for me, and and sadly, there's a, there's a documentary film about Devo that will likely never surface. That was started about seven or eight years ago. So I got to go down and actually spend the day with Iggy and interview him for this film, but the footage has been buried essentially so buried by uh well yeah rights reasons and things like that yeah 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 um okay if you were a cocktail or drink of some kind what would you be and what would it be called (laughs) i you know i don't really drink cocktails well that's okay it doesn't have to be alcohol it could just be well i i could be some sort of tea infused thing or something like that i I drink i drink cider and beer yeah so this is like a if if a bartender friend of yours was like hey i'm gonna name a drink after you how would you, what would you have him make to represent you? I don't know that I could even say, really. Like, um, uh, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank completely. Nice tall glass of water. There you go. We have one of those. <laughs> Maybe you. an empty glass? <laughs> an empty an glass. Empty glass. There you like, go. That would be. Gla- I would be the glass half full for sure. Okay. The, the glass half full is the drink, but it comes with nothing in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, time for your third song. Oh wow! Um, so I I I put uh, I I like a lot of Brazilian music, and I think probably that too has been uh, David Byrne's influence with his Luwakabop record label and 
is releasing uh, Tom Z and uh, Os Mutantis and Caetano Veloso, who's collaborated with a lot. I, I put a somewhat younger uh, both actor and uh, uh, musician artist named Sue George. And Sue George and Almaz um, did a cover of the song The Model by Kraftwerk. So uh, feeding two birds with one seed, I thought I'd put in uh, that because, uh, uh, well, sort of funny story, actually. The, the, um, we've brought Emil Schult from Kraftwerk on multiple occasions to Florida, and he's done. He's performed in the in the Rauschenberg Gallery, and um, Emil wrote the song "The Model." So he was unaware that Sue George had done this cover. They, you know, Kraftwerk had not heard that. Although this young Brazilian artist was doing this release, and it was one of the songs that was beginning to get play even here in the United States. Um, as it turned out, I had the album, and Emil and I were doing a road trip. I think we went over to Cape Canaveral to maybe for even a launch or something. But um, on the trip, on this road trip with Emil, who wrote the song "The Model," I popped in the Sue George new album that covers. And his, he had never heard it. He'd never heard it, and 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 of course. My immediate fear was, oh, my gosh, you know, Kraftwerk's going to sue these poor Brazilian <laughs> artists whose work I love. And Emil immediately thought it was just the greatest thing. So I said, turns out Sue George is coming to Florida for the first time that I've seen him be announced as doing a concert like in Orlando. And Kathy and I were planning to drive over to catch it. So so I got him to sign the Sue George album to uh, Mr. George, Sue George. Um, and and then when we later went, of course, uh, Emil had already returned to Germany. But uh, we connected with Sue George after the show. And I brought him the album that he was covering Craftwork on signed to him by Emil, who wrote the song. How so, was that received? So the first exchange was just this. He ran uh, up as soon as I held it up and I explained, and he just hugged me. <laughs> it was so so great. <laughs> so this is Sue George and Almaz, the model. All right, let's hear it. She's a model and she's looking good. You know he's got that. Was it a CD? This was, yeah. Yeah, well, you know no, he's actually still they, got... they released it on vinyl, too. Well, I meant the one you gave him that was it signed. Was. You know he's got that, like, up on his wall of his studio or something, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm so sure. It's true. Sue George is... I don't know how... You know, if you know the music I don't, well. I don't, no, no. He's amazing. He, he actually has also been, you know, an actor and was in a few important films, but, but one, most notably, was in Wes Anderson's uh, film Life Aquatic. Okay, I've and, seen that. And so he's the, the guy singing uh-huh. David Bowie in Portuguese on an acoustic guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Sue George. Wow. Yeah, yeah. and this is more recent by Sue George. But but um, anyway, yeah, really great. Worth checking out. Uh, it's got that atmospheric thing going his on. His voice is amazing, too, yeah. Kind of from, his voice reminded me of um, Jonathan Richman. Yeah. You know? Modern Lovers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It has that same... Timber or it something. Does. You know if that's the right word, but I said it. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, you did mention we are kind of going a little long here. Jared the Intern has to leave by Jared the Intern. Um, uh, we're going to do a little speed round here. Oh, no. By Jared. <laughs> if you could broadcast a song into the head of every person on the planet simultaneously, which song would you choose? 
And again, it has to be one that I selected? Or? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Of any well, song so, of all time. So it's the, it's the obvious answer. It would have to be Imagine. And, and, and also now, it, you know, again, as we've done uh, projects with Yoko Ono over the years at the gallery, and she's done three billboards for us here in the community, um, she's only mo- more recently been really credited as being co-author of that. So that's been, you know, um, as much as John Lennon, I think, uh, had been resistant when it was originally released. Um, it really comes out of her writing and grapefruit and, you know, all, all much of that. So anyway, as a kind of tribute to, to both, but imagine has probably been answered. That's been the answer. At least dozens once. of times. No, no, not dozens, <laughs> not dozens, okay. uh, but at least once, I think. Yeah. Um, if you had to guess, what would you say is the song you've listened to the most times? Wow. Um, probably some, you know, Devo tunes, probably, you know, I mean, I'm sure, uh, uh, I don't know, Whip It maybe, or, you know, something like that. Um, is there any kind of music or a particular song that you'll avoid? Uh, whip It, yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> whip It has jumped the shark. Yeah, yeah. 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 If, if, if it comes on and I'm at a, in a bar or in a restaurant or something, I, yeah, how I'm many times, tempted to bolt. How many times do you think you've heard it live? Like oh, that song l- live, yeah. Um, I, I I've probably seen Devo now a, maybe a dozen times. So, so probably not, a dozen not, times. Not that that many really. Like I again, you know, they only play now occasionally. So it's sort of they you do know. play that still. I presume I, you, they would have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's true. Um, <laughs> are there any bands or musicians you've gotten into recently? Wow. I've I've been listening, uh, looking back and kind of listening more actually to to Laurie Anderson. I they, they've just re-released her Big Science album, and you know I hadn't spent as much time with that as I had with, you know, watching sort of live things and sort of more recent work. But now going back to that and songs like Oh Superman and you know like these kind of incredible. Um, it, so that's probably also the last thing that I bought. I know that's been a question in the past on this, but um, was buying the reissue of that vinyl. So I've I've been, you know, I've been kind of into that lately. We did, a, a, I think it was our second live show, but we did a, a live on location recording of this at Nice Guys Pizza in Cape Coral uh, with a local musician named Mark Davis. And oh. his one of his songs was Oh Superman. And it was because it reminded him of his mom who had passed away. Wow. And it was just so intense yeah do when you leave you have to go and, and we need to like, give him access to the full edit yeah I because can do and this is a good time to stop because we we've yeah. we've had to rejigger how we do the show listeners we don't get to play as much music now because the copyright algorithms are out to get us um but yeah we'll get you because mark his story and the way the song comes in and so oh, i heard that song once since that episode, and it was one of those moments where it took me back to our podcast, Absolutely. and then I'm in his. You know, I'm I'm suddenly in his memory as I'm hearing a song out in the world because of the nexus of this show. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> give me a chill just thinking about it. Um, yeah. Best album of all time. Wow. Um, for, for me, just the again, probably the Clash London Calling. Okay. Um, which album have you listened to the most times? Um. Boy, uh, 
I listen a lot actually with with the Devo stuff. Like I'll listen to uh, the more recent uh, releases of the very earliest material. There there are a couple of uh, CDs that uh, that. Uh, were released on Ryko or something that are the hardcore era CDs. So, like, I, you know, I listen to that quite a lot. Um, dream exhibit to curate. Wow. Are there any, like, you know, themes <clears throat> or artists out there now that you're not connected with yet that you would love to, uh, you know, get arranged into your future? Yeah. Well, you know, in terms of those that also have a kind of connection to music, I, I've been thinking about maybe making an exhibition with um, Richard Butler from the Psychedelic Furs, who is an extraordinary painter, like a, and a, does amazing paintings. I love his paintings. You know, I still um, am really wanting to do a sort of solo show again with David Byrne. So, you know, that's something that... I hope is on the horizon too, but yeah, there, there are um, lots of things that I hope will find their way into our programming at the Rauschenberg gallery. You know, um, last time you sent a text message, <laughs> I've got my flip phone here, which I found in my junk drawer. So I thought I'd bring it into my office and I'd fool people with it. And then you walk in and you've got a non-smartphone. Old school. I just got to get that in here before we say goodbye. Yes. Uh, so you've never had a touchscreen fancy phone. I, I as, a, as you see, I carry an iPad with me all the time. So I'll, I'll do messenger sort of stuff with Facebook or all. But you haven't had an Android or an iPhone never. in your pocket. Never once. Conscious no, I, decision from the beginning. Totally. Yeah. I, did, I mean, I always kind of then like the flip phone thing. And then when my flip phone broke, I got the closest, closest I could to that. How long did you make it with flip me, phone? Oh, maybe a year or two ago. <laughs> yeah, truly. So I, I, I really, I like texting bothers me. I, I have, and I'm on the road and stuff so much. Like I don't. I don't want to be tempted by hearing that beep or, you know. And you just, it's like you have this this filter. Yeah. Because you could just say to people, sorry, I just, I don't have an iPhone. You exactly. know what I mean? And, and, my, and actually my phone barely gets reception, like in the gallery or <laughs> I mean, it's, I have it off right now in my pocket. It's not, you know, so it's, 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 uh, it's always both the excuse and, and it, you know, it forces you to communicate in other ways, which yeah, I like. Yeah. Plus, if you drop it, there's no screen to break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, okay. It's time for Flip you to... Flip phones break, though. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, this one made it. This one made it a long That's time. That's amazing. This was the first phone I texted on when it was still like, if you wanted to say the word bad, you'd have to go two, two, two. Three. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So if, if I do, if I am really forced to text, I'll, it is possible on my phone, but it's usually, you know, a, truly a one word answer or a few letters, you know, usually misspelled and or, you know. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, OK, it is time for you to recommend your three people. Wow. Um, well, I would say Mark Mothersbaugh would be interesting. Do you think, think he'd do it? He might. Yeah, I think he's interested in music. He's going to be with me on John Davis's program soon. So we're doing some things. Well, share this with him and ask him to do it. We would be obviously willing to do that. Cool. Yeah, he's, he's you know. <laughs> we'll travel for it's, that one. It's a, it's a good time, you know, with him. And, and actually, Beatty Wolf, I, you know, and I can't recommend listening 
to her music and learning more about her uh, more highly. I mean, she's an amazing sort of singer songwriter, but also, you know, in terms of her approach to making music, it's very conceptual. And she also, um, you know, is interested in the way music gets distributed. But, but BD is someone who I think would be amazing for this program. Okay. And then, um, and she just actually last Monday was followed Al Gore on the main stage of the first annual Nobel prize summit and was introduced by a Nobel laureate, but, and then she performed and actually had our uh, announcement card for our show behind her head as she was performing to the Nobel crowd. But, um, she's wonderful. Uh, she too will be doing the interview thing with us, uh, upcoming on the Gulf Coast Life uh, program. And then um, thirdly, I, I think you've had some of the administrators and things from FGCU here, but I I would actually recommend the president of our college at, at FSW, Jeff Albritton, is, um, has a, a real, some really interesting stories and sort of depth of knowledge about music. He's actually in a band with a few of the faculty members. Really? Yeah. That's great. So he has a band. I, th- I think they call themselves Salty Dogs or something, but he's he would be uh, We are definitely. Uh, we had Mike Martin on from yeah. here, so we'll, I thought we'll, so. we'll, we'll just it's keep only fair, rack right? up yeah. the president. Okay, now you know, you know you have, though, committed to putting the show in each of these people's hands. Totally. So I'm sure they'll be Happily. excited to hear that you were on. So. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, okay, well, you've done did it. You got any final thoughts to leave us with? I can't thank you enough. This is just such a treat, and I'm so happy to be face-to-face with you in the studio, and uh, I think what you're doing is fantastic. So thank you so much. It's so nice to get to know you. You know, we get, we, That's the, so great about this. It's not just like come in, talk about your – you know, it's like we get to know each other. So, yeah. Cheers. And then you get to do a lot of editing. editing. No editing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> All right, thanks. Thank you. We are going down, Jordan, we are going down. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chin Kui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and host. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Our theme song was made by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin up at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we're going back one year to the very first recording we did after things sort of started settling down with the pandemic. Pandemic. When things shut down in March of 2020, we actually had nine episodes in the can, so didn't have to record new ones for a while. But once those ran out, we set up a remote recording with episode 116 guest Ryan Warner. He's host of Colorado Matters, the flagship daily interview program on Colorado Public Radio, and he's former host of Gulf Coast Live on WGCU, which I was then producer of. Ryan's first song was about his love of the King of Calypso and civil rights activist Harry Belafonte, which was his first concert experience, so is deeply buried in his psyche. But he says he really loves that Belafonte's discography is so enormous that he still gets to stumble across new tracks sometimes, including, in this case, thanks to Liz Lemon on 30 Rock. The thing is, like, I've been a lifelong Harry Belafonte fan, and I still discover new tracks. Mike, this track was in 30 Rock when Liz Lemon thinks that she has sat next to Oprah on an airplane and (laughs) Oprah has revealed to her before the world her favorite things. And Liz Lemon says, I met Oprah, everyone, and she said her favorite things are saltwater taffy, sweater capes, platform flip-flops, paisley, and calypso. And this song plays. Well, shall we listen to it? Yes. And imagine being on a plane next to 
who may or may not be Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> sure. Keep listening.